the secret to lifelong health and peak performance is in modeling the lifestyle behaviors of our ancient hunter-gatherer ancestors. Hi, this is Dr. Mercola helping you take control of your health. And today we are joined by Mark Sisson, who is a leader in the movement to help people understand what exactly that modeling looks like. And he is the founder of a website, website called Mark's Daily Apple, which is widely viewed and respected among many people. So welcome and thank you for joining us today, Mark. Thanks for having me, Joe. Great to be here. So um, before we begin our dialogue about your new book, which is Keto Reset, I'd like to um, credentialize your your uh, history to comment on these issues. So uh, I want to, first of all, uh, thank you for really being one of the first people to help me understand of the importance of burning fat for fuel. I mean, that, that was about uh, seven or eight years ago when we had a conversation and I said, wow, the light bulbs hit and I really got it, but never really fully embraced the concept until a few years ago. And then you're also an athlete, which I enormously expect of about your abilities and um, we're actually on the cover of runner's world magazine not once not twice but three times yeah and uh, i have a lifetime subscription to runner's world magazine that i paid a hundred dollars for <laughs> like 30 years ago so i got those issues yeah. so maybe maybe you can expand on your athletic history and what you're doing now and give us a background then we can talk a, a bit about the book sure uh you know i just <laughs> I wound up, uh, I grew up in a small uh, fishing village in Maine. I lived a, a mile and a half from school. I found it very convenient to run home from school to get home before the bus would have dropped me off so I could have more time to goof around, right? So it was pretty much a harmless, um, you know, uh, but of necessity choice to start jogging when I was in my teens. Uh, sort of conversely, or uh, concurrently, I should say, at the same time, I, was, I read uh, Cooper's book on aerobics. And it's published in 1968. That was my catalyst too. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And and you know, and it and and the precept or the concept was, the more running you do, the more aerobic activity you do, the better it is for your heart. And you got all sorts of points for how many miles you put in and how much time you put in. And I like accumulating points. So I thought, well, this running thing that I'm doing is actually helping my health, and uh, it's good for me. So I'll do more of it. Um, I was too scrawny to play football, baseball, basketball, or hockey, not even pond hockey. Uh, and uh, so when the track season rolled around, I went out for the track team. And next thing you know, I was winning the mile and the two mile, both events in the same meet. And I, and I was the, like the high point man on the track team. So as a freshman in high school, I was getting all this credibility as a runner. Uh, and, you know, it's, in life, we gravitate toward those things for which we are applauded. And so I got more and more interested in running. I became a runner throughout uh, college, uh, went on to do road racing and uh, 10Ks, uh, marathons and the like. After I graduated, I uh, wound up finishing fifth in the U.S. National Championships in the marathon in 1980, uh, qualified for the Olympic trials in 1980, the uh, Olympic trials marathon. Um, got injured uh, from overtraining. We can talk about what that looked like later on. But then, uh, because I could still ride a bike, I gravitated over toward triathlon and for a couple of years became one of the top triathletes uh, in the country. Finished fourth at Ironman in Hawaii in 82. But by then, I was just like so beat up from the training. Mm -hmm. and, and as it turns out, I was so beat up from the diet 
that was required to fuel all those miles. Um, because um, in, if you remember in those years when Robert Haas's book came out, Eat to Win, right? Mm -hmm. I'm sure you read that as well. Yes. So it was all about the carbohydrates, baby. Uh, and I, there wasn't a carbohydrate I met that I did not love and slam down from, you know, pizza to pasta to beer to cakes to whatever. So, um, but I, but I was falling apart. I was, I was again, a picture of, of fitness on the outside, a cover of Runner's World magazine, as, as I say. Um, but on the inside, I had arthritis. I had tendonitis throughout my body. I had, you know, other overuse injuries. I had irritable bowel syndrome that ran my life. I had upper respiratory tract infections six or eight times a year. I was like, wait a minute here. You know, uh, Cooper said I was going to be healthy doing all this stuff. And now I'm just like literally falling apart. So I, re I basically retired. I mean, there was no money to be made in endurance training and endurance racing in those days. And, and I, 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 I was over it. And I was over all of the pain and suffering that I was, that I was putting myself through just to be able to say I won a medal uh, at a race. And oh, by the way, I'm still not very healthy. Uh, and dedicated the rest of my life to researching ways in which to be strong and lean and fit and healthy with the least amount of pain, suffering, sacrifice, discipline, calorie counting, portion control, and all that other BS stuff that we talk about. Uh, and that led me to writing books on on training and on diet and ultimately to putting up Mark's Daily Apple as my uh, way of uh, communicating my ideas and espousing my ideas to the public. Uh, which then in turn led to my publishing the book, The Primal Blueprint. I self-published it because I couldn't find a publisher who was, who was willing to embrace this idea that everything we know about heart disease is wrong and, and uh, you know, all of the other contrarian wisdom that I, was, that I was putting forth in the book. So I had to publish it myself. And in the, in the last 10 years, I've put out eight more books. And uh, the website has gotten to be, you know, fairly well-respected and, uh, uh, and I now have a product line. Uh, we make uh, Primal Kitchen salad dressings and mayonnaise and, and basically sauces, dressings, and toppings that are good for you. And I'm having a blast. What can I tell you? Yeah, well, that's good. So um, let's get into your specifics of your exercise regimen. And uh, I know you're fond of playing Ultimate Frisbee on a regular basis and also paddleboarding because you live, uh, I believe, in Malibu or at least close to right. the ocean. Yeah. So you're able to do that regularly. And so I know those are two parts of your regimen, but I'm wondering if you could reflect on the mistakes you made as a naive youth seeking to <laughs> respond to the accolades you were receiving and how you would tell your, what you would tell yourself as a youth and how to change what you did and what would you recommend as to someone in an age group who is, understands and recognizes the importance of exercise, but is a bit confused on, on what steps to take. Yeah. Well, the first thing is if you're into this for the performance, then you must of necessity recognize that the less time you spend injured, the better that is. If you're into this for, for, for performance, you must of necessity, necessity recognize that it is the rest period where all of the gains come. And the tendency is to, particularly in one's youth, when there's lots of testosterone circulating and lots of, lots of, um, uh, hubris and enthusiasm, uh, the tendency is to overtrain in, in mm -hmm. all of these endurance activities. Uh, and in my case, um, I trained probably 40 miles a week too much for what my body type was, what my genetic background would, would, have, would have allowed me had I been much more uh, aware of, of the things that could go wrong. 
So I put in over 100 miles a week for seven years. And some weeks were 120 miles and some weeks were 90. But the only time I took off was when I was injured. Mm -hmm. uh, so I basically ran like every day, like a day off for me was only running six miles at 710 pace. <laughs> okay. So it was, it was a weird um, mindset to find oneself in. And that's the, we could spend a whole show talking about the endorphin rush, the true, you know, that true runner's high that people get. It exists. It is a, it's a morphine like substance that your body produces. Um, unfortunately, it's because your body thinks you're killing yourself that it produces this. Uh, so between chasing the runner's high between, uh, and all the miles I put in, the first thing I would say is be, be very specific about what it is you're trying to accomplish. If you want to build aerobic capacity, you don't do that by running your heart rate at 80%, 85% of your max every single day. All you do is beat yourself up doing it. If you want to build aerobic capacity, you have to be good at burning fat, which means lower level aerobic activity. Like like we use the term right now, 180 minus your heart rate as a maximum heart rate for training in the aerobic zone, which is much lower than people assumed even 10 years ago, let alone 20 or 30 years ago when I was when I was running. I, th so, I think you meant 180 minus your age, right? I'm sorry. What did I say? 120 minus your age? Minus your yeah. heart. I thought you said heart rate. Okay. Oh, yeah. No, sorry. One, yeah. A heart rate of, of 180 minus your age would be your right. maximum heart rate. Right. So in my case, you know, I'm going to be 65 in July. So that like, that's like 115 as a max heart rate. Mm -hmm. I would have laughed at that, you know, uh, even five <laughs> years ago or 10 years ago. Like, it's a brisk walk. <laughs> not even a brisk, yeah, it's a brisk walk, exactly. Um, and yet that's, the, that's what we know to be the rate at which you burn the most amount of fat and tap into your glycogen the least amount. And in order to develop that skill of burning uh, fats aerobically, you have to keep a limit on it for a while while the body builds, increases the mitochondria increases the, the capillary perfusion to feed the mitochondria. So that's, that's like one of the things that I would really pay attention to. Uh, what I did, conversely, was I trained in what we call now the black hole, which is a heart rate on a regular basis, like a daily basis, a heart rate that was too high to derive any true uh, or, or to derive optimal uh, aerobic benefits but too low to get any of the high intensity uh, interval type training benefits. Mm -hmm. So I, it, we call it a black hole in no man's land where nothing happens except you tear yourself down. I could say the best thing that happens is you train yourself to hurt, right? Well, so you well, learn how to hurt. It's not quite true. And I want to take a little tangent out here to highlight a warning to give to people like you and me who didn't understand this and engage in these types of activities and develop secondary cardiac problems when we were promised that this type of activity would give us immunity to heart disease when in fact it caused heart disease because we didn't understand these principles and i yep. think you've got you've got some some type of arrhythmia where you require to take yeah, vacation no i no i i have uh, premature ventricular contractions i have a mm -hmm. uh, you know scarring in the uh, left ventricle which mm -hmm. causes a problem with the innervation of the of that muscle and the beat. And uh, without the medication, if I get my heart rate above 90 or 95, it goes into a uh, a pattern of skipping every third beat. Um, mm -hmm. And it's 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 you know it's a I, I would say it's harmless. It's really annoying because on the second on the skipped beat, the um, the atrium fills up with so much blood 
that that when the catch-up beat happens, it squeezes so hard it's like a thumping in my chest, and so it's like <laughs> keeps me awake at night. <laughs> so I take a, I take a calcium channel blocker for it, and it's fine. But but you know, you and I know of all of the, like a, a complete generation of runners who ran too much too too far, and who have a fib, who have a uh, flutter, who have PVCs. Yeah. And it's it's a, it's an epidemic among people who ran more than say forty five or fifty miles a week. Yeah, I, I couldn't so, agree more. Um, yeah. uh, you have a really uh, deep understanding of molecular biology, and I'm wonder. I was reading a book by uh, Lee No, who I'm going to be interviewing on uh, mitochondria, and he had a section in there about endurance exercise and some of the mechanisms. And I wonder if you can give your comment on it. And uh, his thought was that. When you're engaging, when you're a, an endurance athlete, you pick up, build up a really big muscle. You, you know, you can't see it. It's just like a bodybuilder. It's a massive muscle, and you really can't perfuse it that well. So there's what happens is you tend to deplete ATP, and you're not regenerating quickly enough. And uh, his speculates that one of the solutions might be ribose as a precursor to get more ADP in there, so that you can convert it. I'm wondering if you ever considered that, or what your thoughts are on that mechanism. Striving muscle or cardiac muscle, Joe? Cardiac, cardiac muscle. Yeah, um, yeah. I would, I would say that that's probably. Um, I, I would have no problem with that theory. I don't know quite how to test it other than to. Sure. I mean, sure. I was just talking about yeah. ribose years ago, but, but. Um, and it's too late now because I can't. Yeah, my, the damage is my, done, my, right? But no, but I mean, you know, you have a, you know, I mean, it used to be common vernacular in the medical community to say, "Oh, you have a runner's heart," mm-hmm. which means you have a, you know, you have an enlarged heart, which isn't necessarily a bad thing, um, except when it gets when when you get the scar tissue. Because Joe, here's the thing about the heart, which people don't recognize: the heart is like a demand organ. Your brain. Yeah, let's go out and run 10 miles really hard. And so the brain forces the legs, forces the lungs to breathe in. And, and the heart's like, geez, okay, I guess we got to start beating faster to provide more substrate so that this clown can keep running for 10 miles. Mm-hmm. But the heart doesn't have a say in the matter. The heart is mm-hmm. based, it's working based on the demands that you create. Now, to our credit, but to a fault, we have this amazing ability to take the front part of our brain and override the reptilian part that's saying, no, 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 slow down. This is not good. But we say, no, I can plow through this. I can, I'm strong. I can go to the well. Well, that ability to override that natural tendency to want to slow down is what causes runners and any endurance athlete so much pain and agony over the years because the heart just every single day, like Joe, you wouldn't go to the gym and lift do 300 sets of 50 pound curls every single day, you know, just because you wanted bigger biceps, you, you, you recognize that you have to give the, you know, your rest. arms the rest. rest. Well, absolutely. Well, that same principle applies to cardiac muscle. And yet the idea that we would, that we would bypass this whole system, by the way, if you did the 300, 300 sets of uh, curls, every day, your muscles would tell you they would be sore and they would hurt and you wouldn't be able to do it the next day. We don't have that luxury with cardiac muscle until we get a heart attack, right? The heart just doesn't have that sort of nerve system that says, oh, this hurts, uh, you know, and it's not good for us. And that's the real danger of this day in, day out, hard cardio training in the no man's land, that black hole, uh, which takes me back. Go ahead. Well, you finish your thought, and I just want to talk about No, I just to say, which takes me back to why I wrote, I wrote a book a year and a half ago called Primal Endurance, which is really about how to train for endurance activities 
understanding the physiology of, of all of this, cardiac muscle and, and mitochondria and so on, and, and taking advantage of the methods that are optimal for achieving an, a, an increase in performance. Because that's literally, we're not doing this because it feels good necessarily. We're not doing this because we just, we just have to get our workout in every day and it doesn't matter why we're doing it. We're, theoretically, we're doing this because we want to improve our health and improve, improve our performance. So it's ironic that so many people will ham hamper their performance, will hinder their performance by overtraining, by doing too much of something that's already painful. It just blows my mind. So I want to get back to the endorphin rush, and I was interested in your experience. I know I, I experienced it, but it wasn't necessarily a high like you were taking some type of recreational drug. In my perception, it was really more of a pretty significant activation of my brain, and so much so that it, after, and it occurred about 20 minutes into the run. And almost very consistently, I would get all these thoughts and I would just need a, a digital voice recorder to record them all because I would forget them. I have so many. Yeah, and the I best really, ideas you ever had. And by the time you oh, got home, they're gone. They're gone. I, I learned yeah. that painfulness. And yeah. you know, now, of course, you have yeah. your phone as a digital voice yeah. recorder. But uh, back then, we didn't have that. So I'm wondering if that was your experience. And if it was, uh, if you are engaging in any exercises that tend to reproduce that, because I haven't, and I really, I really do miss that because I haven't run significantly for at least eight years. Uh, it, very interesting that you say that. So yes, um, to be clear, it wasn't like I was chasing a runner's high. Mm -hmm. um, it was that, that if I didn't do it that day, I felt low, mm -hmm. if that makes any sense. You know, so there was the, it was almost the reverse of like, I needed, I needed to run every day just to feel normal. And if I didn't run, I felt, I felt bad. And again, that was, that's, it's still very much a, um, a function of neurotransmitters, uh, of, uh, dopamine, serotonin and encephalins and, and other endorphin like substances that are, that are cursing through the brain. And, and that's also what happens. You know, you'll hear about people who they'll never get the same high they got the first time they shot heroin, right? Mm -hmm. That's, by chasing the high, it isn't like you're getting high. It's like you're looking for it, and it's not there. So that was my experience. But I, I agree that, that – and to this day, because I still paddle, when I paddle, I get all my best ideas uh, on my board. So if I'm lost on a blog post or writing a book or I've got a business issue I've got to sort out, I'll head down. I literally go out and paddle alone for an hour and, and I, because I'm, I'm in, that, in that zone. Okay, where do you get your heart rate up to? One fifteen? Oh no, no, yeah, maybe max. That's the that's the wonderful thing about paddling is you can get this incredible upper body workout, mm -hmm. but because the stroke um, turnover is it's maybe one uh, one stroke every two seconds, mm -hmm. uh, it, you don't really get your heart rate up. It's just a it's a, a steady and constant um, uh, application of you know, lats and serratus and, and, and all of the shoulder uh, muscles and everything. It's, it's like the perfect workout. I just, I, um, I'm, I'm, I'm in love with the feeling that I get from paddling, not just being out in nature. Uh, and now the whale, the whales are actually migrating south again. So it's kind of cool to mm -hmm. be out there and see whales. Sure. But it's also the fact that I get probably the best workout I get all week, not in the gym, not at the track, but, but out paddling. Well, let's continue along that thread. And many people don't appreciate how really well built you are. And I know you have photos on your site, but those are deceptive too. And those could obviously be Photoshop. But we've known each other for a long time. And I actually just recently met you 
in person at the Bulletproof Conference last year uh, in October. And I was really astounded at how well built you are. I mean, you're like a fitness model. And uh, it was, you know, you're a reliving testimony to what you're doing. And I think that paddleboard is uh, a useful strategy, but I'm sure there's others. Because I know one of your other mantras is to lift heavy things on a regular basis. So maybe you can expand on your strategy and how you've got the physique you did at 65 years old. Sure. So first of all, how I got the physique is I stopped running. Literally, <laughs> I mean, no, dude, I have not run a mile in 15 years. Wow. Now, I, I, I wow. Sprint. Yeah, I haven't, I haven't put on shoes and headed out the door to go run for any, any, anything at all. Like I say, I haven't run a mile in 15 years. Um, I've, tr I've thought about it about four times, and I literally get <laughs> Look, you hit yourself with a hammer. <laughs> I just, I literally get 200 yards down the road, and I go, "Oh yeah, that's what that feels like." No, I'm turning around, I'm walking back to the house, <laughs> and I'll go to the gym. So, uh, so here's, but here's where I'm going with that. When I was a runner, I weighed 142 to 145. Wow. How tall are you? How tall are you? Five ten. Okay. Five ten. Wow, that is really thin. So, well, no, it's not because it, at five ten. I should have weighed 135. There were the top marathoners in the country were, were weighed 10 pounds less than I did. Wow. So I was, but anyway, so I was what say 142 to 143. I'm now 170. So I weigh 28 pounds more now than when I was a runner. Um, I, I have the same body fat level. I just have more muscle mass. And I do that because I, I only lift and I only sprint. So I, I converted myself from a predominantly endurance athlete to a predominantly strength and and speed athlete, speed being a relative word in my in my mind. I mean, when I'm playing ultimate frisbee, I think I'm really fast, and I watch videos of myself. <laughs> but uh, but it, but anyway, so uh, I had my I had my DNA uh, done a couple of years ago by DNA Fit. I'm sure you know those guys. Mm -hmm. And 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 the consensus came back that I was. Uh, 57% endurance athlete, 43% uh, strength athlete. Now, the, the good news is at only 57% endurance athlete, for me to run a 218 marathon and to run several at 220 and to run 10 at under 225, um, I got the most out of my body mm -hmm. that I was ever going to get, right? Because that's not a significantly biased uh, uh, predisposition to running to be only 57%. But the fact that I'm 43% strength athlete now allowed me when I shifted and I stopped catabolizing, you know, being catabolic in my activities with all the running and tearing myself down and only being kind of, I will say that I will use the term anabolic, building muscle or maintaining muscle. Um, that's because I stopped, I, I just shifted my mindset and all the stuff I do now is contemplated towards speed, or power. And, um, and I'll tell you one of the reasons for that is that because I'm going to be 65 in July, um, as you know, the, when you look at the, at the um, actuarial, actuarial tables and uh, cross-reference longevity with, with mass and muscle mass and things like that, the issue for people as they age isn't a loss of aerobic capacity. It's a loss of, of, of metabolic capacity and metabolic flexibility that comes with lean muscle mass. So the best thing that somebody over 45 can do is start lifting weights rather than choosing to run. Now, ideally you do both, mm -hmm. but, but, the, but the, the standard loss, incremental loss of aerobic capacity 
on a year-to-year -year basis after the age of 35 is 1% a year. The standard loss uh, of, um, of strength is 2% a year if you don't do anything about it. So you have much more to lose if you don't work out in terms of losing what I would call vital capacity. Now, vital capacity, I don't know how much we've talked about this, Joe, but it's, a, it's, it's partly a theory, but it's partly been borne out. People don't really die of old age. They die mm -hmm. of organ failure, just finally was the weakest link in their body. Um, when you build muscle, and when you're, even when you're in your 70s and 80s, you build muscle, the fact that you're doing the work causes the heart to pump harder, causes the lungs to breathe in more fully and inspire more fully, causes the liver to create more um, uh, substrate and clear more toxins, causes uh, you know, all of these other organs to have to function to keep up with the demands of having this metabolically challenging tissue, this muscle tissue that's active and that is burning calories. So to the extent that you maintain that muscle mass and maintain uh, some mobility and do some strength training, your bones stay, stay stronger. Um, your heart stays stronger. Your lungs stay stronger. Now, conversely, if you stop and you say, well, I'm 65, I'm retired, I'm, I'm not going to do anything, atrophy sets in. Now you lose muscle mass. Well, when you lose muscle mass, because they're attached to bone, the bone isn't being called upon to be strong because the, because the muscles aren't, aren't um, causing any sort of tension on the bones. The heart says, well, I don't need to beat very fast because the guy never does anything, so I'll just flutter, flutter, flutter. The lungs say, I don't need to breathe in fully because that's just a, a it's a waste of, of energy and so on and so forth so now you're this atrophied low bone density um, low cardiac efficient person and you get up in the middle of the night to take a leak and you trip over the cat now you mm -hmm. break your hip because your bone density sucked and you, you hadn't done anything to you hadn't done any weight bearing activity so now you go to the hospital you're lying in bed and of course in the hospital you catch pneumonia now you got pneumonia, your lungs are too weak to, to cough out the sputum, and ultimately you might die of congestive heart failure. Because, and I don't mean to paint a, like a terrible picture, but that's, well, that's how people no, die. We've written articles on it. You get a nosocomial yeah. infection from the hospital and die from yeah. that infection. But it's, I like to view it as the, frailty, you know, total body inability to yeah. be optimized. Sarcopenia. Sarcopenia, yeah. part of frailty, but you know, yeah. the inability yeah. to move yeah. well, is just, which is what one of the things that you promote. So, right. uh, so the, I think the key is to improve mitochondrial function. And, and of course we know, yeah. both agree, I mean, the, have the metabolic flexibility to burn fat as your primary fuel, do the strength training. But uh, what are your views on cold thermogenesis? I, I believe you engage in it on a regular basis. And can you comment on how that addresses the frailty in the mitochondrial biogenesis? You know, I don't, I don't, I do it. So um, I just, uh, I have a group at my house right now where we're doing a planning session for 2018. And I was showing them the other day that even though the air temperature uh, today is 72, my pool is 47. Ooh, because, that's cold. That is because, cold. Because the Santa Ana winds were blowing, as you know, if you watch the, 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 the fire coverage, the Santa Anas have been blowing for the last two weeks. Now, when wind blows across a pool at, 30 or 40 miles an hour, it literally super cools the water. It sucks the heat out of the water. And so wow. even though the ground temperature is what it is, and even though the air temperature might get down into the high 50s or low 60s at night and into the high 60s, low 70s during the daytime, the pool is 47 degrees. So last night before I went to bed, I go out, I take about a 10-minute uh, soak. Oh. I have 10-minute soak in my hot tub first, Joe. 
But okay. then I, I no, but then I finish off with two minutes at forty-seven degrees oh. in my pool, and it is that so is painful. It is painful, but but here's the thing: the reason I started doing this three years ago was when I was a triathlete, I hated cold water. See, I grew up in Maine where the water's always cold, sure. and I was sure. a skinny kid, and I hated swimming lessons because it was in the ocean, and I hated, hated, hated cold water. So even when I started training for triathlons. A, an 81 degree public pool was, too, <laughs> was, too, was cold. too cold for me to get in, you know, and even if I warmed up, it was like, no, I want to get out of here. So I said, I'm going to train myself to be immune to this, this, this whole thing about it. It's just in my head. So when I walk in the pool, I don't jump in, I don't dive in. I walk in slowly up to my neck. I dunk my head once and then I hang up, hang out up to my neck. Um, but my thought process is this is only a sensation. It's not good. It's not bad. It's only sensation. Mm, and, and that's an interesting mantra. So I, it's now I'm in the hot tub and I'm going, oh, I could do a couple more minutes, but I'm literally, I want to be in the cold water. Mm -hmm. um, now, after two minutes, I want to be the hell out of there. Yeah. And uh, last night I was alone. My wife's in Paris right now. And I, and I started to think to myself, this could be a little dangerous because yeah. I, started to see, I started to seize up. And, you know, that'd be kind of embarrassing if Mark Sisson drowned in his own pool doing cold plunges. Yeah. But, or an but arrhythmia, I, or an arrhythmia. Yeah, exactly. But I'll tell you, I sleep like a baby. Uh, Interesting. I was going to ask you about that. Yeah. I it is it is it is my pre-sleep routine, and it's been that way every every day for the past couple of years. So when my wife's home, she and I we hang out in the jacuzzi together, and then she, she goes upstairs, and I do my. She will not do the plunge. Yeah. But I do the plunge, and and I I go as long as I can stand it, and sometimes to, to the point of numbness numbness. And then within five, five or 10 minutes, I'm in bed. And like I say, I sleep like a baby. So I'm a wow, big Wow. So right before sleep, you do it. Yes. Yep. Um, and that was part of my, um, in, in looking at um, researching stuff on sleep over the years, you know, it's, it's much easier to go to sleep when you're cold. Yeah, it sure, is there's no hot. question. Yeah, I know yeah. you were using the chili pad. I don't know if you're still using that. If you, still, I don't think yeah. you need it if you're doing the cold plunge no. into 47. No, God, no, 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 no. Believe me, I'm still, with that, with that sort of temperature and that's unusual it's been down to the it's been down to 40 in my pool wow but but wow. it's typically 52 53 in the middle of winter um yeah. which is cold enough and yeah. um and i will be still be you know the occasional little little shiver jolt for the first 10 or 15 minutes when i'm in bed um that's wow. when i know i've done just the right amount of uh of, of cold so you know the it's a it's a hormetic uh, exposure that um, I would suggest probably I think of it more in terms of immune response than I do uh, you know uh, brown fat uncoupling protein uh, you know um, you know any of the other pr uh, purported benefits of it I just do it because I like it I say that but I like it well no you get addicted to it there's a dopamine yeah. rush component to it but the, the uncoupling protein is an interesting process and that's what happens in brown or even beige fat which increases pretty massively when you're doing that on a regular basis so uh and an interesting aside from that it's not really directly appropriate but those raised in tropical areas or their genetic heritages from those areas like in africa their proteins aren't uncoupled that well at all, which we yeah. believe is one of the reasons why they suffer from so many chronic diseases, because they can't get rid of that excess energy. It goes to oxidative stress and causes premature tissue damage. Yep. Yeah, bad news. So yeah, how well, long and, did, and, and, and clearly a lot of it is 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 uh, substrate choices as well, food choices. Yeah, yeah, but still, I mean, they still have yeah. the genetic 
yeah. heritage of not being able to dissipate yeah. their, that, those calories as heat and not yeah. cause oxidative stress. So yeah. um, how long did it take you? You started three years ago to develop a significant amount of brown adipose tissue so that you could generate heat when you're in that water and you know not get uh, shivering thermogenesis. <laughs> well, um, I, that's a good question because I remember um, my old my old strategy, which was I, it's not uh, that time of winter yet. Usually I, I do this in January, February, is to leave my house, uh, and I you know pool's not that far, but to literally walk out unclothed from my house and go directly into the pool first. Mm -hmm. That's a tough one because let's say it is uh, windy out and it's fifty four degrees and it's mm -hmm. or it's already cold and now you're getting into a fifty four degree water with you know with nothing on um th there were times when i would be only a minute in and then have to get out because i was shivering uncontrollably and mm -hmm. then get right into the hot tub you know get right 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 into the jacuzzi now i do the jacuzzi first and i just finish off with that so i i, I really you know i don't i don't know i haven't done any measuring on brown fat and any of that stuff i just know that i've become much more used to it and i don't i don't go into that shivering stage um, but I have some techniques. One of the techniques is I, I stay perfectly still. So I keep my hands about like this and I just stay perfectly still because I'm, I'm literally generating heat from my body into the water, which, which literally you could argue warms the water immediately around me. Mm -hmm. But if you start yeah. to move around, then you feel the coldness and then you start oh, to. That's, a, that's yeah. an interesting strategy because I, when I do my, my, uh, effort at that, I'm typically swimming. Yeah. Uh, and after a, I don't use a, uh, I use a sauna as an alternative heat source, uh, far yeah. infrared sauna. Yeah. Now the swimming, the, the swimming is fine. And the swimming will, you'll generate enough heat that you won't notice it being as cold. But if you just get in and, and hang out there and just move around a little bit, that's probably the worst sort of uh, uh, configuration because you're getting the most amount of cold without doing a lot of, of, of activity to generate more uh, thermal effect from the inside. So I just stay perfectly still, and then I just do a countdown, or I get my I, my watch on, and uh, and it's that first movement getting out of the pool that's the the, the biggest no. shock. But then as soon as I towel off, I'm I'm numb uh, in a good way, and mm -hmm. um, you and know dopamine's increased. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I suspect you're getting used to it. Really had a lot to do with building up your brown adipose tissue and being yeah. able to generate that extra heat and couple those those. Pro yep. proteins. Uh, so um, I'm wondering, you know, there's a, I just found this tool of people, probably many people know about it already, but it's an infrared can't, they cost like $20 and it's a much better for measuring the pool temperature because it'll tell you to the 10th of a degree what the, what the temperature of the water is. You just aim it at, yeah, yeah. they're $20. I, I used to use a pool thermometer, but now I just use one of those and it, boom, I know exactly what it is within a second or two. Well, I'll have to get one of those. I do. I use a regular pool thermometer. Yeah. Yeah. But you got to read it. You know, it's like a, a rectal thermometer or an oral thermometer, you know. <laughs> oh, no, you know, I know. If there's not a low right, light, no, it's exactly. No, but no, it, exactly. Yeah, it's real easy, and you and you can find the temperature to the tenth of a degree. So thanks for your strategy on that, because I think that's really sure. a a powerful tool that doesn't really cost very much, and it's basically free in the winter or in the colder months of the year, because obviously yeah. those who live up north would not be able to do that in the winter unless they're uh, Got a whole really they're, they're wanted <laughs> want to do 32 degree water, which is not yeah. wise unless you built up to it. Yeah. So um, why don't you finish off the exercise by uh, yeah. expanding on the other 
uh, items you do because you're pretty you're a big fan of regular movement and strength training but yeah. we didn't you didn't elaborate on that yeah so i go to the gym twice a week and i do a what, what would amount to a f- sort of a full upper body routine twice a week um and it's typically some variation of body weight exercises so it's pull-ups push-ups dips squats lunges things like that and sometimes i'll weight them um i have a weight vest i'll, I'll use once in a while um i i um I do one day every week or 10 days of just legs, and uh, that focuses on um, uh, deadlifts, but I use a hex bar for, for the Oh, I like that. That's much, much safer yeah. to use. Too, yeah, 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 yeah. Well, yeah. you deadlift, you're probably over three plates, right? Uh, yeah, 300 is my is like my go-to kind of max. I don't want to push it from here. I mean, I think the days of PRs for me are over. And I, I would suggest I would suggest the same for you, Joe. But I don't want to be presumptive. Hey, I'm a year younger than you, so we're actually yeah, almost okay. to, to the to the day. I mean, we were both born in July, so yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, so I'm, um, yeah, I I, uh, I like the hex bar deadlifts. Um, but you know what's funny is like the weakest link for me is my shoulders and my grip um, mm-hmm. at that at that sort of level. Um, I, like I say, wear weight fest. Um, I do uh, one or two days a week. I will do when I, when I talk about not running, I do a half hour or 40 minutes of a steady state, uh, tempo bike ride in the gym on a, on a stationary bike. And I, it's, it's very controlled. So I know exactly what output it is. Um, I have a, a that's where I max my heart rate. I max it to the 180 minus my age max. 115. Um, yeah, so 115, but because I'm fit, um, I can I can know that I can be at 122 to 125 and still be uh, what we call sub-threshold, you know, kind of a maximum. How long are you maintaining that for, and that that maximum heart rate? And do you ever exceed maximum heart rate when you're doing high intensity? Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, so, so this is just what I would call my aerobic training okay. uh, idea. So this is not to say that that's all I train at. There are times when I'll do intervals. I mean, I'll go to, I still will go to the track once in a while or to the beach and do all out sprints if I'm feeling like I'm not going to get injured. Um, and I love doing those. And then there's n- nothing cuts you up like sprints to this mm-hmm. day. It's still the best on the track. There's running sprints is the best thing anybody can do if you can handle it. Um, what do you, what do you, you sprints? hundred hard yards, two twenty? No, I do two hundreds. Yeah. Okay. I do two hundred. Um, and, uh, with a warm up and a cool down and stretching in between and all that, and all that good stuff. You know, but the, but my ultimate frisbee games is the big. That's the big day of the week for me. So I'll play two hours of ultimate, where I'm sprinting back and forth across a field, chasing twenty somethings, uh, and and you know having to recover in between seven or eight second bursts mm-hmm. of speed, uh, and it's just the perfect. It's like the ideal high intensity workout for me. What is that? Uh, what is the the length of a field of ultimate frisbee? Is it hundred yards? Well, well, no, it's seventy. Is the playing field. And then there are two uh, end zones or end zones on either side. So you can play it on a, on a football field. Um, and then the, it's 50 yards across. We play in a, on a schoolyard that I, it's a school, not a school, not a tarred schoolyard, but a grassy playground. And um, I have a, I have a, a, a paint kit, uh, a, a striping kit. And I go out there just before the game every Sunday and I stripe the field off. So it's about, yeah, so our, our field is about, it's about 70 yards long. It's 65, 70 yards long. So it's almost exactly an appropriate length of field. 
Um, but because because with with ultimate, you also play into the end zones. Mm-hmm. Uh, the end zones are are long enough because that's where the the winning catches are made in the end zone. Um, and so you have to run around the end zone a lot to be open to make that catch. Um, yeah. So it's a, it's like I say, it's it's the greatest game ever invented. I think that any school that lost their funding for PE, if they could invest ten dollars in a frisbee and they had a grassy place, it's the perfect game and learning experience and for any kid in terms of camaraderie and gamesmanship and sportsmanship and 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 you know uh, uh, physics uh, uh, tracking the trajectory of a of a arc arcing frisbee in flight hand eye mm-hmm. coordination it's got all of the elements that you'd want anyone to have yeah and you're moving in in, in all directions so all directions long, yep. which is, is the key i think because if you just get stuck at the gym and even doing strength training that's the only thing you're doing even in walking yeah. you're still going mi- to increase your risk of developing frailty as you get older exactly yeah yeah so and, that, any, and, and by the way, one of my good friend, one of my good friends um, is he's 84 years old. He's one of the top cyclists in the world. He's, he's the, the top cyclist in the world. Um, and he so he's he's an amazing athlete. And yet he is so bent over mm-hmm. because all he does is ride his bike. He can't even walk upright. It's just it's amazing to think, well, that's on the one hand, you've got a great, you know, a metabolism and a great great uh, you know cardiac machinery but on the other hand you're basically confined to this one little space that you can move in yeah I couldn't agree more so any tips for those who might be interested in uh, engaging in ultimate frisbee like what type of frisbee do you get uh, how do you learn how to do it do you find groups to play because obviously it's not a solo sport yeah I mean you could go online and, and you can um, you know Google uh, frisbee groups, ultimate frisbee groups near you. There's typically any any sort of urban area has a um, a, a number of pickup games that uh, go on on a regular basis. And I know in our group, everyone's welcome. You don't have to be good. Uh, if you show up and you and you suck, we'll just pair you up on the with somebody else who sucks on the other team, right? Yeah, yeah. So the two the hand, the two equally handicapped, work, equally handicapped. So the teams are even in that regard. And and I don't I don't mean if you suck, but I mean you know it's a, you get to learn through the experience. So the but the best way is just to buy a frisbee and um, Discraft is the company that makes the the actual uh, official ultimate disc. Okay. And uh, it's it's you know just I would just find someone else and practice throwing first because it's you sure. you do need to have that that basic skill. Otherwise, it's just running and 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 catching, and it's a great you know, it's great it, it's easy to learn and it's fun to play at, at all levels. Now, and I'm, sh- I'm assuming you don't play in the rain or adverse weather. Oh my conditions. gosh. We play in the rain. We, we played during <laughs> the Santa Ana winds last summer. Oh my god! The winds were 25 miles an hour. They died down to only 25 miles an hour. And that disc was flying everywhere. And it was like laughable, but we were, we still, we do it. We didn't want to cancel due to winds because it's the most fun that we have all week. Wow. Interesting. And you've been doing that how many years now? Yeah. 14 years. Wow. Are you the senior veteran on the, on the, uh, I'm the commissioner of our local, uh, (laughs) I started, I started playing because, uh, here's the funny story. We always in Malibu, Malibu is a big soccer community. There's Mm 13,000 people live in Malibu. 900 kids are in the soccer program. That's Um, all. So every, yeah, every, every parent, every parent winds up being a soccer parent in Malibu. And so in the early days, when my kids were just coming up to the, to the AYSO soccer, 
uh, uh, program, uh, we would want to spend uh, – games were on Saturday, and we would want to have a family soccer day on Sunday. And we get all these families to play soccer with the kids and the grown-ups, and it was great. But at some point, the kids became so much better than the grown-ups that the grown-ups didn't want to play anymore. And so we had to shift away to what can we do with father and son, father-daughter, mother-daughter kind of games. And we started playing ultimate. We taught ourselves how to play ultimate. And over the years, this little Malibu group of, of ultimate players has generated, I'm going to say, 12 collegiate, like, all-star uh, Frisbee player, ultimate players throughout the country. My wow. son happens to be one of the Happens to be one of the best, uh, I would say, in Southern California. All because we did this, we started this little, you know, fun activity where parents could play with their kids 14 years ago. Yeah, it's such a great tip. I never really uh, dove into it, but I know you've done it for a long time, and I really appreciate you expanding on the details because it can, it's it's basically free, <laughs> and, yeah. you know, and, and it's a tremendous tool that can get you into phenomenal shape. Yeah, if any of your listeners or, or viewers want to go, just if you just Google ultimate highlights and you get a sense of what this game looks like when it's played at the highest level. And then when you watch that, just keep in mind that we look like that most of the time. <laughs> well, you, with all those collegiate athletes or, and your yeah. son, I think that's, that's certainly a possibility. So, yeah. well, congratulations on pioneering that. And uh, yeah. really, because that's the, the key to, to really uh, achieving health and especially into the later years of your life is to find these things that you really enjoy, have a good time and really provide a great stimulus to keep your body healthy. And that sounds like a, it's an excellent choice. Yeah, it's all about mobility, too. I mean, mm -hmm. like, you know. It's finding ways in which to, you can maintain mobility. Once you lose mobility in your later years, it's the beginning of a very slippery slope. Oh yeah, you, you just it does. I've seen that. In my dad now has just turned eighty nine, and you know it's just he can barely get up off the chair and into his walker. And you know, it, once you lose the ability to engage in those those activities, it's it's downhill, and there's no yeah. way back. Which yeah. is, and, and and by the way, it doesn't have to be you know sprinting, and it doesn't have to be sure. ultimate. Um, this is the reason that um, Tai Chi and Qigong and all mm -hmm. of these um, activities are practiced by 80 and 90 year olds in Asian countries. This is it's just this it's this slow movement through a complete and wide range of planes and motions that mm -hmm. keeps the body. They don't, it's not about burning calories. It's right. about the movement. Yes. And the fascia and get, keeping everything mobile yeah. and and not restricted as uh, as time goes by, and, and that's the key. So, any other uh, tips you have? I mean, we can. I guess we can go. There's so many things we can discuss. But uh, well, let me give you the, a tip about movement. We're talking about movement and, mo and motion and mobility. Yeah. Um, and I just want to. Um, I'm going to make a little bit of a plug here. Um, sure. uh, I don't know how much of your uh, your your content over the past couple of years has talked about collagen supplementation. But I am now the world's biggest fan of collagen as a supplement because I've noticed that what goes wrong with my body isn't the soft part of the belly of the muscle. It's the tendons, the ligaments, the fascia, the cartilage, mm -hmm. the joint. It's all the stuff that doesn't have a blood supply that we don't necessarily feed well. We don't give the body the raw materials to, re to rebuild from a stressful event. Mm -hmm. And so I become... The world's biggest fan of collagen supplementation. I do twenty to thirty grams a day now. A day and it is yes a day. You don't, think, it, you don't think you should cycle that? I'll, I'll cycle it on days. Here's how I cycle it: on days that I'm traveling, 
or I, or I forget to take it. Those are the sort of days off. Mm-hmm. But otherwise, pre-workout meal, if I'm going to do it, uh, like if I'm going to do the sorts of things like, like a deadlift uh, on a hex bar mm-hmm. with a lot of weight, and it's going to be yanking on my shoulders and pulling on my wrists and, and stressing my knees, um, I'm absolutely going to do that before the workout so that I have that amount, those peptides circulating, ready to be cross-linked and taken up uh, by the tendons uh, or the cartilage as necessary as a result of that workout. Well, I'll get back to the collagen in a moment, but I had a, a broader generic question on pre-workout supplementation because I, I'm somewhat convinced that it's best to do those workouts in a fasted Captain. state. So yeah, I'm wondering great. if you can give the pros yeah. and cons. I agree. I mean, because I'm still a bit surprised to hear you say the collagen before. Yeah. So all I do is collagen. So it's collagen peptides. So it's not a it's still um, protein. It's amino acids. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but it's but but they're not branched chain amino acids. No, right. No. So you got minim, you got minimal impact on. M2. So you got minimal impact on insulin, and what we're trying to do when we're when we're fasted is uh, we're trying to go into that workout uh, promoting fat burning, mm-hmm. uh, promoting. Um, the main thing we're trying to, to do, especially if we're doing a hard uh, workout in the gym, is we want to increase uh, HDH, growth hormone, and testosterone, a pulse of that in that workout. And that is what gets blunted by most people post-workout by drinking a post-workout carbohydrate replenishment drink, right? So that's the main thing for me. Like I said, I do like to go into my workouts, and most of them I go into – I don't, I don't take the supplement beforehand. Um, I'll just, like if I'm going to do a bike ride, I don't need to do sure, the supplement sure. beforehand. But if it's a heavy uh, a lifting workout or something like that where I know I'm going to stress my – or if it's a paddling workout where I'm really going to dig hard and stress my shoulder, I want, I want to have those peptides there for reconstruction, not for energy. And I think there's a big difference there. So I'm just – it's just uh, plain unflavored collagen peptides in water. doesn't taste great, but I drink it down. Uh, versus, you know, some sugary drink that's got some branched-chain aminos in it or something like that. Sure. So the caveat here, and I think we discussed it at Bulletproof, is that uh, there are a lot of companies out there selling collagen supplements, and many of them deceptively, uh, implying that they're organic. And the key point here is that it has to be organic. It just absolutely has to be certified authentically and reliably organic, because if it's not, the high likelihood is you're getting CAFO chickens from China contaminated with multiple toxins. I mean, that's the conclusion that I reached after researching this. Well, so, okay, but you, now, now you're, talking about, um, you're talking about bone broth supplements. So that would be like chicken bone no, broth supplements, still, right? Well, bone broth, but still collagen is, is extracted from that. Yeah, yeah. Well, not only collagen comes from uh, – collagen can come from hides. So yeah. you can go to Europe where, there, where it's, it's not organic, but the European Union and the, and the, and the CODIS – provides for complete protection that it would it would be uh, certified organic if it were here right mm-hmm. so these are these are non-gmo they're grass-fed of necessity because they're in in like say say in germany right yeah you have to have some reliable third-party yeah. objective certification process going on to make sure you're not going to contaminate because we do so many things you and i both we just you know our exercise experience that we think are healthy for us but they want yeah, yeah. No, no. to run i know i know yeah. Cool. All right. So the collagen is a good tip. Any other supplement tips? Because uh, you know you're you've studied that for a long time, and I appreciate your well, you insights. Know, 
Yeah, I mean, the main thing I'd say is uh, most people in your old stomping grounds in uh, that Chicago area, if they're not taking significant doses of vitamin D right now, are probably, oh, sure. doing, themselves, probably doing themselves a disservice. Yeah. So in terms of supplements, we can talk all day long about, well, I would be taking CoQ10 for my heart, and I'd be taking phosphatidylserine for my, you know, for my cognition. Um, but the, but I would say it's something as simple as vitamin D is like the first thing I would, I would have people take. If you're yeah, not that's the basic. Yeah. Although I haven't taken it for 10 years, but that's because I don't live in Chicago yes, anymore. Yeah, you see, exactly. <laughs> that's my point. That's my point. Yeah, yeah. you need to ideally get it from the sun because there's other benefits from sun exposure than just yeah. optimizing vitamin D levels. Hey, you know what's funny about that, Joe? Something came up today. I just did a podcast and I mentioned your name because someone asked me, what, are there any safe tanning beds out there? And I said, well, you know, I don't stay up on that research, but I would always, always rather get uh, complete, direct, natural sunlight as a first mm -hmm. choice. Yeah, absolutely. But uh, what are you thinking about tanning beds? Because you used to be big on those UVB. Yeah, uh, because just, just as a way to help people get, I think it's better to get it from a healthy tanning bed than it is from sun exposure. But the, the challenge is, is uh, the FTC and the, a former Surgeon General didn't like that too much. So uh, they actually used us as an example and had us pull all our, our tanning beds down and gave us a significant fine because no one got harmed or damaged. But they said we failed to warn people that it can cause skin cancer, even though the yeah, doses yeah. we recommended they couldn't yeah, get it. Yeah. So that's the problem. But I think ultimately really runs these FTC, it's an FTC, it's not FDA, it's an FTC problem. So yeah, yeah. Uh, for, for false advertising. So yeah, the, yeah. Uh, the challenge with that is I think you could do it with, the, I wouldn't do it with fluorescence and what I know now because that can impart electrical energy to your body. Probably would do it in LEDs, which I think is a safer way to some UVB and UVA LEDs and some near infrared and red. I'd mix yeah. it all up, get a little tan, get the vitamin D and that's the way I would do it. It'd probably be an expensive bed about yep. three thousand dollars to do it but well I think you can go to florida a couple times for that yeah yeah you could and that's that's <laughs> the way to do it or to move down here you know we're the yeah. third largest state in the country i know california is number one texas is two but there's a lot yeah. of people who figured out florida is a good place to live yeah yeah yes indeed so um well how about any you know i think you know one of the things i really uh admire about you is that you've integrated intermittent fasting and fasting for a long time and uh, share a pr pretty close to identical viewpoints on mine. So maybe you could summarize your take on that and all the benefits that yeah. occur as a result of implementing it. Because I, I look at, I, and I don't know if you've done a multiple day water fast, but I think that's one of the most profound metabolic interventions you can do to radically improve your health. Yeah, yeah, great. So, um, yeah, I guess the first thing I'd say is um, I've decided over the past five years that three meals a day is just too damn many meals, mm -hmm. um, and that two is a good number, and one on occasion is a great number, uh, and so I've kind of reconfigured my entire day around around a compressed eating window. It starts typically around 1 p.m., and then that's when I have my first meal, and then I'll have a second meal around 7, 7.30 p.m., certainly no later than 8. Uh, and then not eat again, except for a cup of coffee. I'll not eat again until uh, the next, uh, the next one o'clock uh, in the afternoon the next day. And that coffee is uh, just black, no uh, yeah, coconut black. oil or butter. Yeah, no, I don't. I don't like to drink my calories that way. So okay. yeah, just black coffee. Um, and I will, uh, you know, I've I've gotten to the point, like I say, where I can 
look at what I'm eating on my plate and say, I only had two meals today, and both of those were smaller meals than I would have had at that particular time of day when I was eating three meals a day. Isn't that uncanny how little food it takes to keep me thriving? How little food it takes to keep me from being hungry, you know. How little, how little food it takes to free me up to do other things in my life, except uh, you know, then then think about what the next meal is. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I think that uh, if people could kind of understand that concept that we just eat too much, it's just, yeah. it is across the board a problem. And even if you think you can get away with it because you look thin or you look skinny. It doesn't mean there's not a lot of damage going on inside you. Uh, and yeah, so that's probably the, that's been my biggest area of like um, epiphany over the past five years is how little food it takes for us to actually thrive. Yeah, and, and the time-restricted eating, you know, I think is a great strategy because there's there's lots of clear animal evidence that shows that calorie restriction seems, seems to improve longevity, at least in animals. I don't know that it's been proven definitively in humans, but there's strong suggestion it should. But the problem is the compliance to a calorie-restricted yeah. eating program yeah, yeah. is like abysmally low, is well under 5%. But when you restrict the time window yeah. of eating – yeah. You get the same benefit, and and you don't have the cha a challenge with the deal with the hunger. So maybe you can come on your experience with hunger, because you know it's been mine. I I only have a four hour window, and I eat from about ten to two, yeah. is my window. Maybe ten to three sometimes. Yeah. So some, yeah. Uh, but you know, I, I, hunger isn't an issue. And then so address that, and I want to talk to ask you about any snacks you might take to supplement during that window instead yeah. of a meal. Well, so, you know, when you, when you achieve this metabolic flexibility, which is the, which is the end goal of any true mm -hmm. beneficial eating strategy, you're not trying to get into ketosis. You're not trying to be, you're trying to improve your metabolic flexibility, which simply means you can extract energy from any substrate that's available. So it could be fat on the, on your plate, could be fat on your body, could be carbohydrates on your plate, could be glycogen in your muscles, could be glucose in your bloodstream, could be ketones produced by your liver. At a, as a last resort, could be amino acids uh, because there's nothing left, but you can combust those as well. So when you become truly metabolically flexible, then your body has this increased ability to draw on and, and never really run out of energy and never really go send a signal to the brain that says, we got to eat. So the, so the end result of this metabolic flexibility, which comes largely from restricting carbohydrates and, and training your body to become really good at burning fat, the, the end result of this is that you, um, at, at, in, in achieving this metabolic flexibility, you get more energy throughout the day and you don't get hungry. I mean, it's, it's the single greatest report I get from people who do this is like, wow, I just can't believe that I, I don't get hungry anymore. And if I do get hungry, it's not this ravenous, craving, hungry, hangry kind of state. It's just, oh. I'm a little hungry. I should probably eat. And then, you know, you have a couple of bites of food and the hunger goes away and you say, oh, I think I've had enough. So that's such an empowering phase of life to be in where you are not um, driven by hunger from one meal to the next. And yet it's, it's, it's a part of everyone's life who is a sugar burner. Everyone who is a carbohydrate dependent can only burn sugar, is not good at burning fat, needs to refuel with carbohydrates every couple of hours. That hunger becomes the main driving force in one's life, yeah. um, you know, to the detriment of, of pretty much everything else that you're thinking about in some cases. So the ability to control hunger is, um, is massive and, 
And when you get to that point where you realize that you're not hungry, and then you say, I'm not hungry, so I don't need to eat. You know, so you wake up in the morning, you have this energy, you're not hungry, and you say, well, I don't need to eat. I'll eat when I'm hungry. And then you find out you're not hungry until two, you know, one or two or whatever, in your case, 10 o'clock, but then you stop being hungry at two. Look, all this stuff falls apart if you get hungry, right? Any of your right. best intentions go to, go to they, they go in the garbage can if you get hungry. So it's important not to be hungry. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm not suggesting that either you or I ever have a point where like, oh my God, I'm so hungry. I wish I could eat, but I can't because <laughs> it's not time. Um, and to answer your second part of your question, if I do get a little bit hungry, I'll have a, I'll, a my snack would be handful of macadamia nuts. Okay, uh, that's mine. That's mine. It, yeah, it's, I mean, greatest <laughs> snack ever invented. Or, you know, two tablespoons of, of coconut butter or something. Um, it takes the edge off. I'm done, ready to go. You know, no problem. I got to tell you a new strategy I've done because I'm trying to optimize phase angle. And I'm not sure if you're familiar with phase angle, but it's this measure of cellular membrane integrity. And, and I have a very low cholesterol level. So uh, uh, the only thing I know to increase cholesterol is, is coconut oil. So I have two tablespoons of coconut oil, some uh, monk fruit, and then like uh, two teaspoons of different types of mushrooms, like shiitake, trumpet mushroom, lion's mane, and reishi. And then, I'll, and then here's the key, two teaspoons of krill phospholipids. Mm. So not, not phosphatidylcholine, phosphatidylserine, which, uh, but it's got DHA and EPA in there, and I'll just mix it all together. And it, you've got to put the, the monk fruit in there because it tastes pretty bad. <laughs> but it's, real, you know, it's, it's a pretty good treat, and I know it's doing yeah. a lot of good things for my cellular membrane. So. Interesting. Yeah. So, yeah, it's you can play with that. Uh, and if, if you want, I can get you a source for the krill phospholipids. Like I get in this giant container that uh, <laughs> just spoon it out. <laughs> We're probably going to sell some of that in capsules because people don't want to go through that hassle factor. So, um, so now if people were pretty much. Cl- uh, done with our uh, time allotment, but I want to give you the opportunity to uh, tell people where they can go for some of the resources because you know we this is the tip of the tip of the iceberg for your your fountain of knowledge that you've acquired over, <laughs> over the decades of your pursuit of health. So where can people go to find out more of what you have to offer? Yeah, so the blog is marksdailyapple.com. Been there for eleven years, um, not as long as Mercola, but uh, but uh, fairly long. Um, the, um, uh, the resources would be, uh, the keto reset diet. And so we have a blog, uh, and a, a website, ketoreset.com. And then if you're interested in the world's healthiest, uh, mayonnaise and salad dressings and things like that, they're all made with avocado oil. Uh, they're fantastic tasting. Uh, that's primalkitchen.com. We sell direct. We also sell it on, on Amazon. We're the best selling mayonnaise on Amazon. And, um, Congratulations. yeah, thanks. And it's really, a it's been a fun project because we, our mission is to make healthy eating fun and exciting again and i feel like we're achieving that yeah that's ultimately the the bottom line is that you've got to you know i think we've taken similar strategies is that we we need to give them from the way the information uh, for free to people and tell them what to do but then you know it's hard to even with the best information you still need resources to apply this yeah so uh and food is certainly one of the most basic so congratulations on uh, doing that as a as a service for people thank you yeah yeah 